Are you ready to explore life's possibilities? Go from ordinary to extraordinary. Then it's time to live limitless. To live limitless. Here's your host, Matt Bailey. All right, hello everyone and welcome to episode number 23 of the Live Limitless podcast. We're about a week into the new year now, so I hope you're keeping up with uh, those resolutions or goals. Joining me on the show today is the host of another another podcast called The Art of Adventure. His name is Lord Derek Loudermilk of DerekLoudermilk.com. Now, you're probably asking yourself, Lord Derek Loudermilk, what does that mean? Uh, but yeah, who wouldn't want to become a lord when it costs just uh, 30 pounds? or about $50. So you can, it's actually, I did look it up, it's true. He found this out and he thought it would be a cool thing to do because it is legitimate. You too can become a lord or even a baron if you cough up a few extra bucks and you can do so via sealand.com. So this is one of the many interesting conversations I have with Derek during our interview. Uh, Derek is a former professional cyclist and scientist who became a, a digital nomad as a writer, podcaster, and coach. So as I mentioned previously, he's the host of the Art of Adventure podcast, where he interviews world-class performers doing uh, incredible things in global exploration, human performance, and entrepreneurship. He is also the author of the soon-to-be-released book, Conductors, which he successfully launched on Publishizer.com. Derek and I have a lot of similarities especially our passion for adventure. So this is what uh, leads to an interesting and inspiring conversation. Uh, Definitely, if you're looking for some tips, tools, and inspirations for bringing more adventure and excitement into your life, this episode is definitely for you. We talk about a lot of things, such as quests uh, and bucket lists, uh, his transition from microbiologist to podcaster, you know, how the four-hour work week kickstarted the digital nomad revolution, uh, his different income streams, podcasting and the benefits of having a platform and so much more. So I hope you enjoy this interview as much as I did. Uh, And again, just a reminder, if you do like the podcast, please leave me a a review on iTunes or anywhere else this podcast is listed. Uh, That's how other people can find out about the show and I get more listeners, which is always really good. And if you want to look at the show notes or leave a message from me or Derek, head on over to livelimitless.net and find the Derek, find the interview with Derek Loudermilk. And, and leave a comment, and I'll make sure he sees it. Other than that, enjoy the show. Derek, how's it going? Hey, Matt. It's going well. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Yeah, it's awesome to have you on the show. I've been, like, really checking out your... I've been listening to some of your podcast episodes, the ones uh, with Derek Sivers as well, because I love that guy as much as you do, I'm sure. Yeah. And, and I got it. so I got a chance to meet him. I always thought, I'm going to go track this guy down because he's moved to the corner of the earth. And when I was in Wellington, New Zealand, I reached out to him and he said, yeah, let's, let's hang out. And I basically got a full morning hanging out with Derek Sivers and he basically just spewed a bunch of wisdom and then offered to be a mentor. And I was like, all right. (laughs) That's amazing. Yeah. Is he still like your mentor now? I check in with him from time to time. Cool. Just to keep him updated and see what he's working on. And I just, I just found out that he's hiring. I bet 10 million people will apply to be his uh, CEO or or whatever for his personal business. It's like the president of his company or something. I actually thought of it because I was like, Oh, that'd be a great guy to, to work with. But I'm sure there's thousands of people applying that have uh, more expertise as, as, as a president already. Mm. (laughs) It's hard to say. Yeah, it's but... interesting. The idea of, you know, a lot of people will want to work with him just to soak up his wisdom because he's such a thoughtful guy that, you know, it's probably worth more than the the pay you get from the job. Yeah. Just to be exposed to someone who's put a lot of thought into things on a consistent basis. Yeah. Well, there's lots of things like one of the like I listened to his interview, I think with James Altucher and with Tim Ferriss. And then I read his book, um, is it anything you want, mm. I believe. And it's just like what I, I just think it's, uh, his advice on business is quite different than the status quo. And it's very much like almost like approached holistically, you know, in the sense where he'll say like, you're, when you're creating your business, it's like your chance to create the world that you want. 
and in your own rules and how you see it and you know things like the having a copyright page and a policy or what is it called like the that some people have on their website like a policy thing that people just like mm. think they need and he said like yeah. you, you don't need any of that like <laughs> maybe at some point you do but it's it's definitely if you're looking into starting a business that's the last of your concerns and i just like the way he approaches things more like organically yeah almost but, but i had a i had a friend say something to me recently about imagine that we're in the matrix and you can you can try anything that you want and uh, it, it spurred me to create a, a silly marketing video for my book that I was launching uh, where I was trying to encourage people to lick a nine volt battery <laughs> <laughs> because the name, the, the name of the book is conductors. And I thought, Oh, conducting electricity. It's kind of like conducting ideas, right. this theme. And I was like, okay, there's the whole ice bucket challenge thing. And I just think it'd be really silly if I could get people licking batteries, uh, <laughs> you know, like a viral thing. Uh, and it was just really fun to make and really goofy. And, you know, a lot of people saw the video, so it was, it worked out, but it was just all, it's just all made up. You know, we just make it all up. Yeah, exactly. It's, I mean, if there's anything I've learned in the process, like I don't think anyone knows what they're doing. <laughs> right. Even, even like when you hear about like, uh, the, the political arena and all this kind of stuff, you start to realize that like, I don't think anyone really knows what's what's going on. Like it's just being all made up as we go. <laughs> yeah. But uh, where are you at the moment? I know on your blog it says like you lived or you or you live or you lived in in Bali for some time. Is that? Yeah, that's where I was based most recently. Currently, I'm in St. Louis, Missouri. I'm about to become a father for the first time. Wow. And thank you. I was in Bali for a couple years on and off as, as a base. And then in Asia, Southeast Asia, all around Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, Thailand for about three and a half years. And primarily to experience the culture, have a long business runway because cheap cost of living and do some exploring a part of the world that I hadn't been before. And it worked out really well. Bali is a great place to surround yourself with entrepreneurs. I learned how to surf there. I learned to do yoga there. And it was just uh, exactly what I needed because there's also a lot of, there's a lot of people trying things, a lot of people making stuff up there, either leading retreats or hippies doing weird ceremonies. Uh, I met my girlfriend Heidi at a chocolate uh, cacao ceremony <laughs> and is she also yeah, from was, the U.S. then? Or no? She's from San Diego. Okay. Um, so that was fortunate that we're both we're both American. So when we come back here, we can Makes see our easier. families. <laughs> um, but yeah, it exposed me to a lot of diversity in terms of worldview and uh, experience. Yeah, absolutely. And are you are you planning to move back there once you become a dad? Or well, so I know that you're big on quests and you have at least one large quest that I know of. I have a quest. One of my quests that I have going is to live three months or more on every continent, excluding Antarctica. I'll give that a pass uh, unless I find something really interesting going on there. But to make sure that I really get to know a culture and, and honestly, if you live in a single city on a continent, like you're not going to get a representative of the whole continent, but oh, yeah. Uh, so I've got North America, born here, Czech, Europe, uh, I raced bikes in Spain, Australia, I studied on the Great Barrier Reef, and then Asia in Bali and Vietnam. So next stop is Cape Town, South Africa. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah, that'll be really cool. Yeah, definitely. It's one of my, my – I'm sure you probably saw like one of my quests was to scuba dive every continent. And uh, I have one easy one left, which is Europe, and a really difficult one, which is Antarctica. But uh, it is possible. It's just that it's expensive and you need uh, more training. You can't just show up and jump in the water. Yeah. I've always but... wanted to cave dive. Right. Because I love caving and I love diving, and I'm really interested in 
odd ecosystems. Yeah. You know, but that's like the most dangerous. They say when you're in the middle of a cave dive, when you're at the halfway point, you're farther away from help than the astronauts on the space station are wow. away from help. And, 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 and it would like be that. terrifying because I've done like not cave diving, but I guess what you would call cavern diving, like in the cenotes in hmm. uh, in Mexico. And it's it's the only type of cave diving you can do without like a specialty license. Mm. Uh, and it is, I mean, you are enclosed. Like if, if you were to, to panic at some point or something and you wanted to, to rise, you wouldn't be able to. So yeah. it's like, it's, it's pretty, yeah, it can be a little bit, I can see why some people would not like it. It's <laughs> definitely claustrophobic. I don't see myself doing a like hardcore cave diving, but that was a, a unique experience for sure. Yeah. I'd recommend it if you're ever, uh, in the, the Cancun area. Okay. So, It'll be a good start because there's one there's one called the pit where you go down like 47 meters, which was the deepest oh. I've ever been. Um, and then there's one where you go through through tunnels, and it's like you're in a submerged cave. It's pretty cool. Wow, that sounds fun. But um, yeah, just like reading your blog and listening to your podcast, I noticed you have a, a master's in, in microbiology, and that you've also studied marine biology on the Great Barrier Reef. So I was just wondering, like, like, how did you transition into kind of like the writing and podcasting yeah. world? Well, I, I was a scientist, and I grew up thinking I was going to be a scientist. And I think uh, a lot of us have these scripts that we write for ourselves about how we expect our life to turn out. And my dad is a scientist, and I think that I just copied his script. Okay. And I said, oh, I want to be a scientist, and I was good at it. And I liked spending time outside, so I thought, oh, I'll be a field scientist. So I was studying marine biology on the Barrier Reef. I was studying rainforest ecology. And then I went to grad school and was studying the hot springs of Yellowstone, looking for new forms of life and sort of like studying the beginnings of life. So I was studying viruses. And science research is, is even when you're out in the field, you go and you get some samples, and then there's actually so much information in a sample that you could spend 20 years analyzing the data from a single trip to the field. It's crazy. And I was spending most of my time in a dark microscope room. The best part of my graduate school experience was teaching, and I and I realized, you know, combination of the economic outlook for academic scientists in the U.S. is not not great. It's really hard to, to become a tenured professor. And, you know, com the things that I like doing, being outside, being around people, teaching, learning things, I wasn't doing very much. So I had to, had to make the call and drop out of my Ph.D. program. And I totally pivoted, read the four-hour work week, started a coaching business for, for coaching cyclists and hit the hit the road with my now ex and we started traveling wow very cool yeah. it's it's amazing how many times you hear the word uh four hour work week from like digital nomads uh, like I, I talked about that on on a recent podcast so like i don't like it seems like tim ferris pretty much started that whole movement right like I, i've never met someone who wasn't inspired by by that one yeah book. and it was and it the way that it's written, you think, oh, my gosh, this is the easiest thing in the world. Yeah. And it's not that easy. <laughs> so you just go and you, you try it out because um, it's something worth trying for sure. Yeah. And for me, it was like I, I've even recommended that book to people who who I know would never kind of want that, that lifestyle. Like they work in the corporate mm. world and, and they enjoy it. But I just think even just the mindset, even if you were to – establish that mindset with with learning or with hobbies or something like that it's still a great great method yeah so now one of the things i wanted to ask you too you you, you wrote on there that you're like genetically predispositioned to be happy 80 percent of the yeah. time so i was wondering like is, yeah. is, is it really true that our genetics play a role yeah in that? genetics is the largest role in our happiness and i got lucky won the genetic lottery in that aspect and so i was mostly happy growing up. And then I've done a lot of meditation and work with neuroplasticity 
to increase my happiness levels even further. And so you can, you can actually rewire your brain by focusing on the positive experiences you have throughout your day. And, you know, you hear a lot about people writing down things that they're grateful for or even just praying at, at mealtimes or, you know, saying grace or all these things um, rewire your brain to focus on positive things. And um, that helps increase your happiness levels. So I've probably boosted my natural levels from 80% up to about 90%. And, and it's, it's, it's great because, oh, what is, um, this guy, Sean Acor has a book called the happiness advantage. And he basically, uh, flips the formula for like, oh, I have a successful career. Uh, I'm earning money. All these things will make me happy. And he said, it's actually the other way around that happiness will lead you to being more successful, to earning more money, to being more creative, to having closer friendships, and she said, you know, here's all a bunch of things you can do to work on your happiness levels, and that will fuel all of your other efforts, hmm. which I think is a cool way to, to go about it. Yeah, for sure. And it, it makes sense. But how did you find, how do you find out, is there like a way someone could find out if they're genetically positioned as like to be happy? Like, is it like a 23andMe type test or? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's just. That's just observation of oh, my natural right. state, you know. Um, but uh, who is it? Rick Rick Hansen is who I learned about, you know. That's how much of your happiness is genetically determined. Okay. So you might be thinking, oh, well, what if I'm only 50% happy naturally? If you use neuroplasticity and, you know, focus on the good things in life and experiences the joy in your life and all that stuff, a 10% swing will be huge. Yeah. Right. So working on that stuff is always useful and valuable. Yeah. I was just wondering, cause I know I've been, I've been so interested in years for taking like a 23 and me test mm. just to see some of my uh, binomes or whatever they call it yeah. there. But I was wondering if something like that would actually tell you if like, Oh no, you're going to be miserable for a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know that's people say oh well i i kind of want to take 23 and me tests but then what if i find out something that, that i don't like or something like that and here's the thing with information is theoretically it's always useful to have more of it because you could always just ignore it um if you find something bad about yourself i mean will that would that change if you found out you were like predetermined to be happy 75% of the time. Would, right, yeah. would that change anything for you? No, probably not. I, I yeah. don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I, my fear, I, well, I wouldn't really call it a fear, but with, with 23 and me, there was a really interesting podcast with Tim Ferriss once. And like the, uh, oh man, I don't know what he did. Like basically he works for like the FBI and all these things on um, security. Mm. And he said like, he thinks like all if he were to do one of these things like 23 me he would do it under a fake name just because he said like you know eventually i mean no one really cares about me probably or you but for anyone like really high up if they if a, say a terrorist or a bad guy finds out your your like he knows exactly what to create to be able mm. to to kill you kind of things like a, like a virus that would sp yeah. specifically attack you Things like this, and he, he said all this in the podcast, and I was like, "Oh, that's kind of freaky." Like, you know, if someone wanted to kill me, they would just <laughs> like come to my house and yeah, get yeah. me. <laughs> yeah, but it, it's interesting, though, right? Like, it's kind of it's a little bit freaky to know that like people could have access to your your genome sequence in a way. Yeah. I don't know if it matters or not, but it just sounds scary. <laughs> well, I think I think I'll probably. Uh, I'll probably clone myself yeah. in the future so that I, um, you know, can pawn off all the the hard work on my clone and just chill. That's true. Yeah. You can mail him to Mars and he can figure stuff out. Exactly. <laughs> so now you went from scientist to digital nomad and now you're about to become a dad. So I, 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 you just mentioned like you started off by being a coach for, for cyclists. So I was just wondering yeah. if, um, like what businesses or 
income streams kind of thing have you set up along the way to kind of be able to be a digital nomad? Yeah, the first business was cycling coaching. And so my partner at the time, she started a food blog and I started a cycling coaching business and we grew them to $1,000 a month income. And we figured that was enough to let us sort of travel indefinitely in cheap places in the world. And, right. uh, yeah, pretty, pretty much. How did you worked. get them to a thousand dollars a month, like advertising or. But with the cycling coaching business, it was all referrals. Okay. Like, was, uh, so you were, you were charging for the coaching. Yep. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. It was just a monthly sort of thing. And I was signing people up for usually a year of coaching and I was specifically targeting collegiate athletes and youth. Um, so their parents were probably going to be the ones paying for their coaching. And these are going to be kids that wanted to become professionals. And cause there's not a system of, uh, teams that have coaches like there are for soccer or football or, or whatever. Right. Um, so people hire private coaches and so it was, it's a good business. You could, you could make a full-time living doing that. If and what you, about uh, your uh, your ex at that time with like the the food blog? Same thing, like coaching. Yeah, the food blog. She grew that. Um, how did she grow that? It was mostly social media, I think. Okay. Um, through Instagram and and Twitter and whatnot, and it was basically oh no, Pinterest was the main driver because. Okay. Food blogging is a visual medium, right? And Pinterest is the most visual social media, and a lot of women are on it. Women right. like food blogs, yeah. And um, that was kind of cool to see, you know, the two different businesses grow in different ways. Yeah, I'm just always interested to hear how, like, with both blogging, because there's so many ways that people can make money from it. So that's why I was wondering if she was doing it like through advertising yep. or consulting or. Yeah, and then food blogs mostly get their money from advertising or paid promotional things. Like a company will approach you to write a post for a thousand bucks on their new whatever yeah. knife or type of food. Nice. Um, and so that partnership model is something that I've used some with the podcast, The Art of Adventure. That was my next, uh, the next step, and. I started the podcast intentionally to be a vehicle for both learning and teaching, growing a platform. Cause I was, I was writing at the time. I don't write uh, on the blog as much anymore. Uh, honing my own speaking and presentation skills. So there was a lot of benefits from the podcast, even though I wasn't monetizing it right away. I started using Patreon, which is a, sort of a recurring crowdfunding platform for people that wanted to support the show. They would just donate a dollar or $5 per episode. And so I had enough people supporting the show that way to keep the show going and pay for editing and hosting and all that stuff. And let's see what else. Oh, and then, so the, the podcast and meeting lots of people led to opportunities to teach podcasting. I've helped people launch about 30 or 40 people launch shows. Okay. And when I was in Bali, uh, a lot of these entrepreneurs were adding podcasts to their platform. They were already bloggers. They were adding podcasts. And so there was a market for, for that. And so I was running live trainings and remote coaching for podcasters. And, so that was sort of the, the second or third wave of business. And then people wanted, they were listening to the art of adventure, you know, back in North America or in Europe that hadn't made that leap to digital nomadism or location independence. Right. They were wanting to start businesses. And so they started approaching me to help them start a business, whether it included podcasting or not. And so then now we're in the fourth sort of, iteration, which is where I help people start a location independent business so that they can travel. Okay. Great. Yeah. And definitely as, as a coach, it probably makes sense to have a podcast. Like I, um, 
I noticed, like, I think, I think a lot of people just think they need a podcast. And I think it's like, in your case, it's great to start one for other reasons other than making money, I think, because it's not the easiest platform to, to build a business around, at least yeah. in the beginning. And, and I did it for the same reasons as you. I just think it's a great way uh, to meet people. Yeah, it's kind of, uh, it's so, it's like your secret in, you know, someone like I'm, I'm talking with uh, Brian Grazer right now, who's the Hollywood producer of, um, oh yeah, he's a pretty uh, interesting guy. I can't like, uh, I heard yeah, him I think, did, on Tim Ferriss as well. Right. Or James. Okay. Altucher, did he get, uh, Tim Ferriss scoops me all the time, <laughs> the jerk. Uh, but I scooped him as well nice. on Derek Sivers. So that was okay. Oh, yeah. Um, but but yeah, this big time Hollywood producer. Uh, I would have no business interacting with him otherwise. But it's the perfect excuse to meet whoever you want to meet. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, and based on, on your book, um, like obviously, it's like uh, I think before we started recording this episode, but we were talking about how much alike we are in the sense of having like yeah. big, big goals and like a, a list of awesome things to do in life and stuff like that. So that's why I wanted to. Uh, well, let, let, let's start with some ideas. Like, what's one of the biggest ideas that you've been able to push to fruition? Well, that's interesting that you ask that question um, because... Or some, if, not, if not idea, even like a goal. It doesn't, I mean, same thing. Yeah. yeah. I, I've actually probably... My, my feeling is that I've been sandbagging in terms of how much I actually accomplish. Okay. Yeah. I, you know, m became a pro cyclist and I, you know, said I wanted to research extremophiles in Yellowstone. I did that. I said, I wanted to start a business and travel the world. I did that, but I, none of those things have benefited the sort of millions of people that I would, the ultimate dream, right. Is to have some enterprise that's helps, lots and lots of people. And I think only now am I starting to think less about myself and more about what, it, what sort of big structure business enterprise charity will be the sort of signature piece of the next decade. Right. And I've got an inkling that that is going to be something about uh, a marketplace or a platform that connects the right types of people with the right types of ideas. It's almost like a, like a match matchmaking service for co-founders or for the right ideas. Um, taking, taking networking and crowdfunding to the next step. Gotcha. Cool. But even like for personal goals, like it's like, like I always look at um, Chris Galabu, for example, Mm, yeah, you know he's built this amazing platform, and World Domination Summit is probably his, uh, I guess, his big thing that has brought a lot of people together. But it, I, I find it all started off as kind of like a, I'm sure it was just a personal goal, but like a marketing thing to to visit every country yeah. in the world. Like it was definitely just a personal goal, but it it kind of it gave him that that marketing edge to to, to produce right. things like the World Domination Summit. So I think it's still still great to have those personal goals because that's kind of what inspires others to come look at yeah you. and i do kind of some some weird or funny things to um either be conversation starters or to use as marketing so um set a world record last year climbing volcanoes in bali three we climbed three of them back to back to back in record time uh a group of friends and i did that and so that's cool you know um got a got a world record been to all 50 U.S. states. I did that before I turned 30 because we had this map on our wall growing up where you get to stick a pin in the state. Each time you go to a state, you stick it in. Okay. And so my parents, you know, obviously had a big head start on me, and I was like, I was going to catch them. They made it to all 50 states a year or two before I did. Um, but this, so that's kind of cool. And now, now if I meet someone who's from the United States and they, I can, I can have something in common with every single person. Right. Except people from Guam and <laughs> cause I haven't been there yet, but, but it's funny, you know, so is, that's, is Guam ever really 
included is one of like it's not a state but so if you count puerto rico and other territories okay um guam's one of them guam is yeah uh another territory i've landed in guam before if that counts so. <laughs> hmm. there you go but exactly. I, I didn't get off the plane so i don't know if it really counts <laughs> or maybe i did I, but uh, only in the airport right right so you know i just uh it's like we were we were chatting before where you can just make make stuff up and so so one thing i always wanted to do and i realized is this is why one of the reasons why i was getting a phd because I wanted to be called Doctor Loudermilk, okay. and I and I thought, you know, that's actually such a silly reason, such a vain, egotistical reason. Uh, so I dropped dropped out of grad school, and I thought, oh, I'll never get that cool title. But I found that you can actually buy a hereditary title in the Principality of Sealand uh, for something like. 40 pounds or something like that. Where's Sealand? Sealand is a tiny country off the coast of England in the English Channel between England and France. Uh, It was founded from reclaimed British territory that was abandoned after World War II. So this family founded a a kingdom there, and you can buy title in the kingdom. So I'm (laughs) now Lord Derek Loudermilk. That's funny. I get people to introduce me that way at uh, speaking events and stuff, and people <laughs> always come up and ask me about it That's pretty afterwards. Awesome. They're like, are you really a lord? I'm like, yes, I am. <laughs> How much does that cost to become Yeah, a it's like 40 pounds, $50, something like that. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah. Can you buy sir, or is that only from the queen? Uh, you, you, yeah, you would have to get knighted, but you can become a baron <laughs> for a little bit extra. Wow. But who has the money for that? <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty funny, though. It's like, where did I hear something like that before where you can buy, oh man, I don't know, buy Well, at first maybe. I was looking, because you can buy castles in Scotland or Ireland or England, and those are, you get the title, you buy the castle in the lands and you get the title, but those are in the, you know, two to a hundred million dollar range, and I <laughs> was saving my pennies, but then I found this easier way. And can you imagine the heating costs of those things? <laughs> so those things are stone cold. Yeah. <laughs> and what's so, um, so obviously your big goal is creating that platform. And what about like on a, a personal level, like kind of bucket list, what's some of your next goals you'd like to accomplish in the next year? You said one the of them, I guess, was, uh, was living three months. On every continent. Yeah, three months on every continent. I think we'll get all of our – I think we'll get Cape Town next year, and we're looking at Mendoza, Argentina, or Cuenca, Ecuador as options in South America, Uh, good places where there's expats and digital nomads already. And I – you know, I'll be a a first-time father, and I've been thinking a lot about what that means to be a father, what it means to be a man and masculinity. And uh, something struck me with the, with the election here in the United States recently, the Trump just won. And the, the headline the day after he won says Trump taps into a vein of deep discontent. And, and I personally know a lot of men who have, uh, have struggled with addiction and they're not happy even though they have material wealth. And it's just, I don't know. It's just really got me thinking about fulfillment and what it, what it means for people to be fulfilled and what it means for people to be adult men, mature men. And I don't know. I think that's, I think I'll be doing some work around that in the coming year. Um, because I think it's important for, for men to be, you know, yeah. well-rounded and mature and not get stuck in some either stuck in adolescence or stuck in addiction or stuck in discontent or whatever it might be. Yeah, it's pretty, it's definitely interesting. Even for me up in Canada, like watching the election from afar and at least anyone I know was like, like baffled by the, the results. But I definitely know of some people up here as well that were like voting that would have voted for him, 
And we actually have a lot of articles coming out now on like the possibility that that kind of stuff could happen in Canada as well. Mm. Like despite us being pretty progressive, there is like kind of a growing movement as well just because of the, I don't know, the clash of the the middle class kind of losing some of the value. But I just think it's amazing that people think that uh, one politician will change all that because I think it's a, it's a, right. it's definitely a bigger thing. Like with the globalization, like I, like, Man, like I, just in one example, like someone said, like manufacturing jobs, you know, for example, won't come back to the U.S. Like it doesn't matter who's exactly in charge. Like it's and, already been outsourced. And, yeah, so. and here's here's what I think that's coming from is the uncertainty in careers, uncertainty in what we'll be doing in our lives. You know, uh, if take it to the extreme, for example, robots manufacture all the goods or they're all 3d printed and food is automated and there's no more truck drivers basically all these jobs that are taking up most of the job market we don't have to do them anymore it's just all taken care of then what are we going to do as humans and people are probably feeling a little scared that they're going to be replaced but it 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 just creates the next opportunity for okay, what, what are we as humans going to create next? And what are these things that we can do that aren't going to be replaced mm-hmm. by robots or artificial intelligence, virtual reality, whatever? And one of my favorite ideas is creating experiences for people because if physical objects are easy to procure, then what's going to be valuable? It's the experiences we have in life. And so entertainers are already highly paid. Um, doctors and healers are highly paid people that lead events like Chris Gillibo and world domination summit. You know, I think it's going to be things like that, that bring us together as people and have wonderful experiences that that's going to be a large part of the economy. Yeah. I, I can definitely like see the fear. Someone told me the other day that they already have robots doing creative writing, <laughs> which is, uh, hmm pretty like extreme I, I i never would have saw that one coming but um it's 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 i can see how it would be really scary because i actually told when i was talking to someone the other day about this subject and i said i wonder if at some point the government would intervene on robots because like it's it, like let's just imagine if tomorrow like every truck driving was replaced by a robot right like a lot of these truck drivers don't have any education they're definitely not going to be like robotic engineers next so if there's nothing to replace i think it was elon musk that said we need to start giving people like a basic income mm. in the future to be able to still support the economy with without a lot of jobs but at the same time sometimes i think like if someone's not like i think with with me and you were really into learning and if i didn't have a if i had just like a trust fund pouring money in I would still be, I would be like super active in life and learning stuff and moving around. But there's a lot of people who wouldn't, I don't think, know what to do. Like they would be pretty stagnant even with income and Mm. maybe just watching TV or going on Facebook all day. And I think that would create another problem as well, like another angst in society when you don't feel productive anymore. I think, I think people, I think it's a human, I think basic human trait to, enjoy challenging ourselves and meeting a challenge. And I think that it just, sometimes you need some guidance or a little bit of um, someone supporting you along the way to get started. And so people that are, you know, if they were just checking Facebook all day or, or whatever and not feeling fulfilled, I think still the drive to challenge themselves and learn and grow is always going to be there. Kids are naturally that way people just need to find the right things and and feel empowered. Mm -hmm. People aren't going to do that if they don't feel that they can accomplish anything. And so, you know, I'm not too worried about that as a basic driver of, of humanity and and us solving problems, because actually we get a surge of dopamine when we solve a problem, we get happier when we figure out a solution to something. And so it's always going to be, driving us to create and innovate. And 
setting up structures to allow people. So for like the Elon Musk thing, paying a salary, just clearing the barriers away so that people decide that they, yeah, I do want to experiment, try things, learn, come up with goals and projects, whatever it is, you know? Yeah. It'll be interesting there. I think there's a town in Ontario, Canada, that's going to start as early as next year with giving people a, a basic income. So it's going to be kind of like a test. Yeah, the rest of the country. that's great. And sometimes it makes sense. Like when I've looked into it, you know, I don't know the exact details, but like there's already welfare. Uh, there's already like employment insurance when you lose your job and mm-hmm. all that would be gone if everyone had a basic income anyway. So you're also saving a lot of money in yeah. that way with all the, the bureaucracy. Bure- yeah, exactly. That, so. Yeah, it's an interesting yeah. idea. And I don't think that until we prove that it will be good. Yeah. Sort of economically that any grand policy would change around it. But if it's a no brainer, if the if the evidence shows that we have to do it, then maybe it will happen. Yeah, and you never know, right? It's still like for anyone who who strives to get kind of like ahead in life, quote unquote, like a you know, they're still they're still gonna be inspired to work because it's only the basic income anyways. It's not like it's going to be buying you a massive house or anything like that. It's just like providing that yeah. need so that you don't aren't like forced into poverty, which is pretty cool. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see what happens. And if you, if you look at, okay, that's my, what happened in, in the Western world in North America or, or whatever. If you did the same thing with clean water for people in places where there's not clean water, you know, uh, they're spending a majority of their day, searching for water, if they didn't have to do that, it would free up so much time that at first they'd be like, well, we don't know what to do because you yeah. <laughs> spent 40 hours a week getting water and now we have 40 hours a week to do whatever. Uh, you give them access to water. Maybe they get access to education and all of a sudden the possibilities open up dramatically. And it, it, it's kind of the same thing, but just a couple steps different. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, it'll be. I'm, I'm, I'm really like inspired to, to see what happens. That's for sure. Um, before we get away from like the, the goals and bucket list stuff <laughs> and stuff, what's um, you know, any tips for others looking to make kind of their, one of their dreams a reality? Mm-hmm. I've been, I've been thinking about this a lot recently because I had I just did my book launch and my goal was 250 pre-orders. We squeaked in at the last minute, got 255 or something like that. And I was never that worried that we'd make it. I just focused attention on it for for the month that we ran this campaign. It's sort of like a crowdfunding campaign. And you you don't know – I didn't know where – who was going to be buying the books, who would be interested in, in it. Um, there was a couple corporations that hired me to speak and bought a bunch of books – um, that I would then piggyback a workshop off of. And so knowing where you're going to, your goal and where you're going to go, but you don't know all the steps along the way to get there. And you really just have to, it's almost like having faith that it's going to work out. If you focus your attention and effort on it, it's going to pay off, but not exactly how you expect. And most of the things that have worked for me have been simply by putting my attention on them enough. And, you know, whether it's I end up working 60 hours a week or 10 hours a week on them, but I'm just thinking about them consistently. I think there's something, I think there's something to that. Uh, Napoleon Hill talked about that in his book a hundred years ago, whatever you put your attention on it, it grows. And it it just it just makes sense, and so that's kind of how how I operate. I don't stress or worry about making goals. I just focus attention and energy and uh, have faith that they'll that they'll work out. Right. Uh, another example besides the book was each year I donate my birthday to charity, and. I wanted to to donate to a local charity in Bali, a birthing center 
that uh, the the founder actually made Times Person of the Year in 2014. They have birthing centers all over the world. And there's a monthly pool party that goes to a different mansion. They rent out a giant villa and have 200 or 300 people with a DJ and an all-day-long pool party. And I asked the organizer if he would do the party on my birthday for this charity event, not actually expecting him to say yes, but he agreed. And so I had, this is the only birthday party I've ever had with 200 people there. We raised hundreds of dollars for this charity. Everyone loved it and it, and it all worked out, but we just sort of, I knew, I knew what we wanted and I, you know, yeah. to get money to charity, but I didn't know how it was going to happen. I just started asking around and, and making requests that I actually didn't expect anyone to grant, yeah. but then they did and it, and it worked. Well, it's kind of good. I remember like in the, the four hour work week when he, Tim Ferriss talked about, uh, it's easier to dream big than to dream small because no one's dreaming big. Mm. So it's like, everyone's kind of working on the smaller things. So there's more, more competition in the smaller things, but thinking really outside, like much bigger, no one's doing that because everyone's more afraid. So it's kind of an interesting take on And it, people get on board with big ideas so quickly. Mm-hmm. You know, whatever thing, if you want to just, I don't know, create something that's totally new and fresh, people just jump on. We uh, we started this men's uh, men's group that was playing Ultimate Frisbee in Bali. And at first, the first time we played, we just had six people. We played three on three and went out for lunch afterwards. Uh, the next week it was 12. The next week it was 18. And pretty soon it was 30. And we were adding a second day of the week. And it became this whole thing. And now they're teaching hundreds of school kids how to play Frisbee, Indonesian school kids. And it just, you know, they play in international tournaments. And the whole thing is just taken off. And it it just started with, let's just try this thing that's not happening and 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 it worked yeah yeah i think like it, it sounds almost too simple but a lot of the times i tell people like you just have to start like yeah. it sounds too easy but I, th- I think a lot of people actually don't start they just get maybe caught up in in the last step instead of just focusing on the first step. yeah and it, and it goes back to that belief if you don't believe that it's possible then you're not going to start so you have to so you have to sort of internalize that I expect that I'll be successful, but I don't exactly know what it'll look like. Right. <clears throat> and then, so now that you mentioned your book, and I think it has a lot to do with bringing ideas to life, right? So it's called uh, Conductors. And, uh, well, I'll let you explain, explain what it's about, and then uh, I'd just like to know what inspired you to write it. Yeah, it's um, taken, it's a bunch of themes that I've noticed from the interviews I've done over the last few years, a couple hundred interviews, what is going to be valuable for people in an uncertain future? So truck drivers getting replaced, they are going to have to learn some new skills probably, or anyone whose job is changing or replaced, we have to learn new skills. We have to connect with the right people, our network, um, and, and build solid relationships to find love or to get a job or whatever it's going to be. We have to be able to tell our story about what the value that we have, what we're good at, how we fit in with the rest of the world, with a team. Um, obviously telling the story in the, in a marketing standpoint is important. There's just a, a bunch of ideas in the book that I think are going to be consistently valuable through any career, through an uncertain future. I don't, I don't know how virtual reality will change business, but I expect that if you have a certain set of skills that you'll still be fine, even if we're all living in virtual reality half the time in a decade. So that's, that's why I wanted to write this book for people who are just starting their careers or pivoting their careers or want to make something happen, entrepreneurs or charities or, or whatever it is. Um, and, and also partly I talked earlier about the evolution of my own business and I basically had a book. I had all this information uh, sitting there from these podcast interviews that I had done. And that's that's what the book Think and Grow Rich, Napoleon Hill, did. He interviewed a bunch of people, condensed the ideas into a, 
this book, which is the second, third most popular book of all time. And I thought, oh, I'm just going to copy him, use what I've already learned, and write a book that I think is valuable. And a book is like a really um, valuable business card, essentially. Yeah, that's true. Um, you can you can use it to for credibility to get more speaking gigs for corporate consulting, and that's already happened. I've seen. Um, you know, I just spoke at Edward Jones last week, which is one of the Fortune's top ten places to work. And yeah, it's really cool the doors that have that have opened up. And it was just kind of a thing that I wanted to try. You know, it was yeah. like I don't know if it's going to work, but let's, let's just try it out. For sure. Well, it's pretty amazing. Even like with, uh, I guess, any kind of platform, right? Even starting a blog. It's pretty interesting, like what doors open that you never would imagine. Mm. And then with a book, it's it's a great way to get um, bigger ideas down. I think than a blog, people mm-hmm. people consume a book different, and there's less distractions typically when they're reading a book than a blog post. I think, but but so how what were some of the steps you took to write it? Because I know like writing a book is a pretty difficult thing, both like focusing and just making sure you get kind of a succinct ideas and kind of the methodology to the book. So like if there was anyone out there who's kind of inspiring to, to, uh, to write a book, do you have any tips? Yeah. Well, so I started writing a book, uh, you know, where I would just started with chapter one and was just writing it through. This is a little different in that it's based off of the interviews and the transcript. So I outlined and mapped out the whole thing and then I slotted in the ideas from interviews where I wanted them basically as, you know, sources, uh, kind of like how you would write a, a thesis paper in high school or something like that. Yeah. Um, and so I'm actually working with an editor to help get it all, all the ideas in the right places. And so it's, uh, at this point it's not quite finished, but it's it's pretty simple. It's pretty straightforward. The book's basically written. It just we just have to, you know, make sure it flows and makes sense and has the impact that we want. Right. So are you working with an editor, then? Yeah, exactly. Okay. A friend who is both an editor and an agent. Oh. Wow. Um, and it's sort of like they're not ghostwriting the whole thing, but they are um, doing work that I didn't want to do. Right in, in terms of making it sound coherent, right? Yeah, and you and you went with a publishizer. So for the, for those who don't know, like publishizer is like a crowdfunding um, website for for books specifically, and not just to raise money for the book, but to find find publishers that are interested. So what? Um, well, first, congrats on getting to your two hundred and fifty goal. Yeah. Like it's definitely like a. I know from just doing other things that it's not, it's never easy to, to reach those kind of goals. So, um, I guess, why did you choose the route of publishizer and like, like what are some tips you have, uh, on marketing it so that you could actually get to your 250? Yeah. So I met the guy who founded publishizer randomly at a, on a holiday, uh, a festival in Bali. He was out walking around. I was out, someone introduced us. And it was in the back of my mind. Some of my other friends had used it. And it's sort of, it's kind of cool because it gives the, it takes the place of the advance, essentially. Um, And then they'll query publishers for you, sort of acting as an agent. And it's kind of, it's kind of a blend that sort of middle ground between finding an agent and getting an advance because advances have kind of gone away, uh, and it's sort of, I see it as a stepping stone. You know, you have this proof of concept, 250 pre-orders. Then if I go with a publisher, you know, I would want to sell a lot more than that. I would want to sell in the tens of thousands and get it in bookstores and all that stuff and do a legit marketing push mm-hmm. because ultimately reaching more people with this information is good, I think. Yeah. And how I marketed it. So I knew I had a goal of 250 pre-orders. So I set another goal of telling 400 people about it, either in person or with a personal 
email or Facebook message. And so some percentage of those people would buy a copy or pre-order a copy or two. But my focus was on people putting in bulk orders. So you could hire me to coach you for your business for a discounted rate if you if you bought books. Right, okay. Um so that so they're basically getting a discount on the coaching less than they normally would and they would buy 20 books or I would waive my normal speaking fees if you bought 25 books and I'll come to a workshop for your corporation. So it's specifically targeting these large bulk orders of books. And I know that people have done that for to help them get on the New York Times bestselling list and stuff like that. Yeah. Is they'll say someone who's someone I think like again, Tim Ferriss. Yeah, I think it was or, Tim Ferriss that probably started it again, right? Yeah, or Lewis mm-hmm. Howes, they would say, I'll come on your podcast, but I'd really like for you to pre order fifty books kind of thing. Um or wait, didn't you didn't you buy a bunch of books from Tim? Yeah, actually there was like one of I think it was the first so, time he did it. I, th- I think now it would cost a lot more money, but at that time it was a hundred books I bought, so it was like fifteen hundred dollars, and you got to go go party with him in San Francisco on a warship. Wow, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So so going for those leveraged orders, you know, rather than just asking all of your friends to buy a copy, um, and and so probably half came from bulk orders, and probably half came from friends and contacts buying a single copy. Okay. And how have you found, I don't know if you've, if you would have noticed by now, but I know like, for example, publisher, publishizer takes like, I think it's 30%. Mm-hmm. And whereas you could go with say Indiegogo or Kickstarter and only they take, I think 8%. So have you found like the value in the, the platform? Cause I know like, I mean, the difference is that they, they link you with publishers. I guess that's pretty much the. Uh, yeah, that's been valuable, and just having a dedicated contact at Publishizer that mm-hmm. helps me with marketing. We had a weekly marketing call, and so, you know, okay. I again, this was something I was just sort of doing because yeah. it seemed like a good idea. So it's nice to have someone hold your hand along the way. I'm always prepared to pay for expert assistance. Um, cause it makes everything go so much smoother and faster. Um, I'm a coach, but I also get lots of coaching myself. Um, just yeah. like, in, just like in sports, you know, it, it, it always pays to have some outside help. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. I was, I'm curious because there's a, there's a couple of books that I, I would like to write one being actually nonfiction and fiction, uh, and definitely some, some children's books that I've been mm. working on. So I have one written now and uh, just the words, I still have to edit it down because I recently found out that certain children's books can only go up to like a thousand words. And after that, like they're not really accepted by publishers, like, like, Interesting. For, like for, for picture books. So mine is yeah. already like 6,000 words. So I have like a lot of editing to get it back down. Well, you got so six that, books there. Exactly. <laughs> but it's, but it's, but that, and that's a, totally different market but i'd I'd just be be curious as to how to get it out there once it happens yeah because because with that one i think with the children's book well a picture book kind of has to be physical copy in many ways like i think that's what makes it a a picture book it's it wouldn't fit on a kindle for example so it's it's that's the most popular gift we've gotten for our kid we just have piles of books children's books already waiting to be read <laughs> so there's it's really popular still actually that it's yeah, funny that you said that because it just reminds me of something i read on your your interesting your hundred things about you on mm. your blog that you that you collect wooden boxes and comics i think Is that right? yeah i have uh about 250 wooden boxes from around the world wherever i travel I pick one up and then other people have started doing it. So if you don't know what to get me for Christmas, pick up a $10 wooden box at a market whenever you go to a new place and I will be happy. Uh, and, and so I will hide little treasures in each box. And so I'm already thinking like, 
about my son and I'm going to slowly, you know, try to pass my collection on to him and each one he'll open it and there'll be like some Arabian money from Morocco <laughs> or there'll be a, um, you know, like a, like an ancient shark's fossils, shark tooth or something. Yeah. And then, so he'll be like, well, what is this? And I'll tell him the story. It's just a fun, it's just a fun thing. I, I have so many, so much stuff. And, you know, it's funny, someone that lives out of a carry-on bag most of the time, uh, my storage locker had, you know, hundreds of comic books, hundreds of wooden boxes stored away that I wasn't using. Okay. Because yeah, <laughs> that's what I was going to ask. I was wondering if, if you maintain a residence in the U.S. like while you're gone or if you, if you put it all in storage. Yeah, which is which is a shame. And it seems silly to have a bunch of stuff and pay for it to sit around, mm. you know, but you, you've, you've read Harry Potter. Yeah. Well, I haven't, and I mean, that, I've, I've only read the, the first, the first two books, but. Okay. Well, there's this idea of the Horcrux, which comes around in the later books, but it's, it's the evil guy puts his soul into seven different objects so that it can, so no one can kill him until you kill all the, the things. And I see physical objects kind of this way is like, you have a memory that's tied to this physical object and it's a a little piece of joy, a little memory part of your life. And so I find that physical objects like carry all this, these memories and this psychic ties to them. And Mm -hmm. so it's it's really hard to get rid of things because of the memories that are tied to them. Yeah, that's true. I think like, like one of the things I've collected, actually I did it purposely so that it would be tiny but uh it's just like one like a dollar bill from every country yeah. like a yeah. kind of like the smallest denomination and from some places i didn't do it i, I think maybe like england because i thought it was like too expensive i think, it's like, <laughs> I think like the smallest one is 10 pounds and i thought well that's oh, wait seems... till your currency devalues yeah. england and then we'll talk yeah but it's pretty cool when you look back and i always try to find the one that's in, in mint condition mm-hmm. and it's just kind of like a cool pretty much 50 cent souvenir that's flat yeah but, uh, I give those to a lot of my friends' kids, and they love them. Yeah, I bet. I would have loved, like, especially, like, coins. I bring back yeah. coins, too, and I think one day I'll put them in, like, a treasure chest for my kids or something as well. Exactly. But, yeah, exactly. It's, 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 it's kind of a fine line, right? Because when you're a digital nomad, I mean, you, you hear so much about the people that have, like, 40 items, and it's almost like they've made it an obsession just to have less. And I, I don't know if there's te- technically a meaning behind it other than almost marketing at some point. I heard way. recently that the average American has 300,000 items. Yeah, well, there's definitely like... Uh, That's so many. I know. It's definitely like a, a sickness <laughs> in the consumer society. But you can even see that just like I've worked in retail a number of times. And it's amazing what goes out of a store in one day. Mm. Like, like one store in one day in one city in one country how much stuff goes out. <laughs> wow. So, yeah, it's, it's a, and obviously you can't hold on to all of it, so it all ends up in the landfill at some point. I'll just, <laughs> we'll just throw it into space with a catapult. Probably, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, well, yeah, that's, uh, like, that's, uh, it's been an awesome, great talking to you about this kind of stuff. Um, before we sign off here, is there anything... Anything you'd like to, to mention to listeners or places they can find you? Sure, yeah. The easiest place to find me is at DerekLoudermilk.com. That's my website, and that's also my handle on Twitter, at DerekLoudermilk. And feel free to drop me a line if you have any questions. My email is Derek at DerekLoudermilk.com. And, yeah, thanks for having me on, Matt. It's been a fun conversation. Yeah, it's been uh, really great, yeah. Very diverse array of questions so thanks for leading a good interview yeah no problem and if anyone wants to find your your book i know right now they can't pre-order it at this point but um or or, or can they uh well i closed the campaign but i well whenever this comes out anyway uh it will be out again in bookstores soon enough so keep your eye on that and you can sign up for updates um on the publishizer campaign uh, so that's publishizer.com slash conductors. And if you're writing a book, uh, I can introduce you to the publisher team, whether Matt, you or someone listening. Awesome. Yeah, I would love to. 
Yeah. Well, yeah, it's been awesome having you on the show, and uh, we'll definitely have you again, again sometime. All right, thanks, man. Take take care. All right, well, that's the end of the episode. I hope you liked it as much as I did. And if you have any questions um, or comments for Derek or myself, head on over to LiveLimitless.net and uh, find the podcast episode page, and then you can uh, leave a comment, and I'll make sure he sees that. Otherwise, feel free to follow Derek. Uh, you can actually send him an email, Derek, D-E-R-E-K, at DerekLoudermilk.com, or you can also find him on Twitter. And I'll have that all in the show notes over at LiveLimitless.net. And last but not least, if you like this episode, please leave me a review or share it with your friends. I always love having more listeners. Other than that, we'll see you in the next episode.